0: Welcome to episode 115 of Kentucky History and Haunts and part two of the Geneva Hardman and Will Lockett story. In the previous episode, I told you about the murder of Geneva Hardman, the search for her killer, and the preparation for his trial in the Fayette County Courthouse. On part two, you'll hear about the brief murder trial and subsequent chaos that erupted in the city of Lexington. After his indictment was read, William Lockett quietly pled guilty to the murder of Geneva Hardman. The prosecution called one witness to the stand. That was Claude Elkin. He was there with the group that found Geneva's body. He saw the bloodied stone next to her head and that was pretty much it. One of the defense attorneys stood and read a statement written and signed by Lockett himself And it's pretty long, but I do feel like I should read you the whole thing. So here we go. I have pled guilty and have no defense to make to the charge against me. My fate is in your hands, and I throw myself on the mercy of the court and jury. I'm sorry that I did it. I was sorry the minute after the deed was done, and I don't know why I did it. I would give anything to bring the little girl back to life and undo the wrongs I have done. I am 33 years of age. I was born in Henderson, Kentucky. My father and mother are dead, and I have no blood kin that I know of. I have had very little education. Most of my life has been spent in farm labor. I have never been tried in court for any offense except misdemeanors, and I was never court-martialed while in the army. My wife died about a month ago, and this has been on my mind. I was in the military for 11 months, all of the time at Camp Taylor near Louisville. I was first in the pioneer infantry and was afterwards transferred to the quartermaster's department and worked as a teamster about the camp. Lieutenant Fowler, a white officer, was my last commander. I was honorably discharged at Camp Taylor in May 1919. I submit my discharge certificate with this statement. While at Camp Taylor, I was treated at one of the regimental infirmaries for disease. I have had this disease for 10 or 15 years. It may be this had something to do with the act I have committed. This disease and my ignorance are all I have to offer in explanation and extenuation of what I have done. I don't know why I did it. It has been explained to me that the punishment for murder is death or confinement in the penitentiary for life in the discretion of the jury. All I have to ask of the jury is this, that if you gentlemen of the jury can find it in your hearts and conscience to be merciful to me, that you will spare my life and not impose the death penalty, but send me to the penitentiary for life. This is all I have to ask. I do not say that I deserve any mercy at your hands, but gentlemen of the jury, as you hope for mercy yourselves, I ask you if you can be merciful to me. I have asked the lawyers appointed to defend me to read this statement for me. Signed, William Lockett. While this statement may not have actually been written by him, the things in it were true. He did serve at Camp Taylor. His wife, Katie, did die about a month before the murder. And as this statement was being read, the mob outside was growing loud and impatient. And at 9.28 a.m., There was gunfire outside the courthouse. Whatever that gunfire was, it didn't escalate right at that moment. Everyone inside stayed fairly calm. They were told to take their seats. Lockett's attorneys finished their statement. And then the prosecutors made their closing argument. And then Prosecutor Allen told the jury that if they wanted, they didn't even need to leave their seats to to deliberate. They could just figure it out right there on the spot. That was very unusual and this suggestion, paired with the gunfire outside, tempted Judge Kerr to declare a mistrial, but he decided against it. In fact, he went with Allen's suggestion that the jury just go ahead and make a decision right there in the courtroom on the spot. So at 9.40 a.m. on February 9th, 1920, after about a 40 minute trial, Will Lockett was found guilty and sentenced to death. Some accounts of the day recall that gunfire erupted again outside as soon as the sentence was announced. Judge Kerr, meanwhile, addressed Lockett Quote, On the morning of March 11th, before dawn, you will meet death by the method provided by law, and may the God of all mercy have mercy on your soul. But this is not. The end of the story. There was a whole other story unfolding outside the courthouse that day. Most people gathered out on the street started out mindful of those steel wires that had been put up to keep the crowds back. But it only takes one. One man pushed past the cables, a cop went after him, they started fist fighting, and it all went downhill from there. Two more people were immediately arrested, but as they were trying to resecure the cables, more and more members of the crowd started pushing closer to the courthouse. At this point, more people are still showing up, too. The, the crowd is still growing. Those first shots that were heard around 930 were fired by General DeWeese, and they were believed to have been warning shots to tell the crowd to get back or signals to his men to open fire if needed. Later, he commented that those shots were a signal of action to his own troops, but that he had, quote, averted the shooting as long as possible. So he he said, you know, I tried to wait as long as I could before we had to fire on the crowd. Um, There are some discrepancies as to whether or not machine guns were ever actually fired. Uh, Witnesses from the crowd swore they saw, quote, scores of men dropping in the melee. But it's believed now that that wasn't because they were firing the machine guns. It was just people were ducking at the sound of gunfire. Um, People were shocked that the death toll, when it was all said and done, wasn't much higher Um, Very soon after those first gunshots rang out, the mob was headed for the exterior stairs at the front of the courthouse on Main Street. And sheriff's deputies, at the same time, were storming out the front doors towards the crowds with shotguns and rifles aimed. And they had to fire, pushing them back out into the street. But some of the people in the crowd were armed too, so they fired back, and all of a sudden, this had turned into a battle. In fact, it's sometimes referred to as the Second Battle of Lexington. Up until 2018, you could see the remnants of this battle in the facade and up the front steps of the courthouse. It was visible where the guns had fired until they renovated that building and cleaned up those old wounds. Um, but yeah, it had turned into chaos. Bullets had uh, were ricocheting and they ended up smashing out windows in nearby buildings There were two pawn shops open that day nearby. So if people weren't already armed, they were hurrying over to these pawn shops to buy weapons. Although not everyone was buying them, apparently the shop owners thought they were loaning these guns out and that they were going to get returned later. Uh, One of the shop owners, Harry Sculler, said he handed out almost 50 revolvers. Um, And between the two shop owners... (laughs) They apparently got seven of those guns back. So not, not a good move on the shop owner's part. Um, it was hectic. There were attempts to break into the University of Kentucky armory, which, fun fact, was used to hold the first UK basketball games. And there were rumors spreading that an extra 1,500 men were on their way from eastern Kentucky to join the mob. So as you can imagine, there were several injuries and some casualties. The first death was a man from Versailles named William Hiram Ethington, and he was only 33 years old. His dad was with him the day of the mob, and his dad wrote a letter to the editor in the paper standing by the cause and saying, you know what, law enforcement shouldn't have started firing, especially not from the second floor of the courthouse, which apparently they had done. Um, it was a sentiment shared by many that several lives could have been spared if they had just given lock it up to the angry crowd, just let them have it. Um, this first casualty, William Ethington, didn't even make it to a hospital. He died in an office at the Fayette National Bank building. Um, ambulances did show up and they started attempting to transport the wounded to St. Joseph Hospital, Another man who died was James Masengale. He was young, too. He was 38. He was a brick mason from Lexington, and he died from injuries sustained during the mob two days after the incident. The men who died, their death certificates all read uh, either just like this or very similar to this, gunshot wounds inflicted by authorities during riot. Massingale left behind a wife and three kids under the age of seven. Uh, this is a sad one. The third death was a man who wasn't even part of the mob. He was just an innocent bystander, and he'd actually been cautioning people leading up to that morning to remain peaceful, to not start any altercation. His name was Benjamin F. Carrier. He was an insurance salesman from Lexington. There were other casualties, uh, John M. Rogers, a 66-year-old farmer, Major L.M. King, a retired farmer, and then not all those who were shot were killed. Like I said, there were injuries. There was J.W. Stansell, Stansell, a veteran of the Spanish-American War who was shot in the hip and in the shoulder, and he wrote to the paper, quote, everybody says they didn't shoot, but if all those who did shoot would send me a dollar apiece, I could pay my doctor's bills and feed my five little ones. Three Lexington police officers were shot. A guardsman named Elmer Moore was shot in the abdomen but survived. One lone female was listed as being injured during the riot, and again, she was just an innocent bystander. Her name was Irma Cross. She was 21 years old, a stenographer, and she was just watching it all unfold from her office across the street from the courthouse when a stray bullet broke the office window and hit her in the calf. Those in charge of keeping the peace would say after it was over that they regretted nothing. General Dewey said he would do it again exactly the same. If they hadn't acted when they did, they believe the courthouse would have been definitely stormed and that the lives of not just Lockett, but his defense, the judge, anyone in that courtroom would have been in danger. The board of the NAACP wrote a statement thanking law enforcement for stopping the lynch mob and letting Lockett have his day in court. W. E. B. Du Bois also wrote about the event, and he titled it "The Second Battle of Lexington." He wrote, "How high shall we value human life?" In Massachusetts in 1775, eight men were killed in the Battle of Lexington. Was it worthwhile? The shot was heard round the world. In Kentucky in 1920, five men were killed in the Second Battle of Lexington. Was it worthwhile? Already, lynch law has cost America 3,000 lives, and mob law has taken 10 times as many. If further bloody toll can be saved by five deaths, we have gotten off far more cheaply than we deserve. So right after things started to calm down that day, and when I say calm down, I just mean there was like a lull in the in the battle, The governor asked troops from Camp Taylor in Louisville to come down to help make sure there wasn't a second wave of violence. 400 troops led by General Francis C. Marshall arrived in Lexington around 315. These were guys who had, for the most part, just gotten back from World War I. So when they stepped off the trains, even though they were met by a mob of thousands of people by that point, There was no resistance to their presence. I think the mob realized at that point they weren't just dealing with some local lawmen, these were soldiers. The troops treated this mission like they would any other. As soon as they were there, they started sending back intelligence reports to the Central Department in Chicago, as well as to DC. They got off the trains, they stood in formation, bayonets fixed, and started marching down Mill Street. It was an eight-minute march to the courthouse. They surrounded the courthouse, and in five minutes, the crowd had dispersed. They propped up a big American flag as if to take back their territory, and General Marshall declared martial law. He said, you all need to be out of here by 4.30 p.m. Anybody who's left loitering around the courthouse will be arrested. And another 800 troops showed up in Lexington around 6 p.m. They were not messing around. Up until this point, maybe this story didn't sound that crazy. Like, yeah, there was a brawl outside the courthouse, not a huge story, but I think it'll, it'll be a little more impactful, hopefully when you all see the photos that I post, but that's when the brevity of this kind of hits you the military moved into lexington and treated this with the utmost seriousness Um, the photos of the tanks and the streets are really impactful in my opinion so they set up camp at Stoll field on uk's campus they set up tents they set up outposts on all the roads leading into downtown and they divided the town into four military zones, and they started working in eight-hour shifts. General Marshall had been specifically instructed to find and arrest any leaders of this mob, but there didn't really seem to be any leaders. It was kind of like, you know, every man just showed up for himself. No one stuck out as an organizer. So he couldn't do this. That, that task didn't get completed. But he was named the military governor of Fayette County, and he was prepared to enforce martial law. Lexington citizens were subject to searches, quote, at whatever times it is considered advisable, which means whenever troops felt like searching somebody. Anyone going downtown had to present identification. No one was allowed to carry a weapon. You could be arrested for loitering, so if you were downtown, you'd better have been going from point A to point B. No standing around, no chatting with your buddies on the street. You had to get a pass to enter the city. This was referred to as an order to outpost, so you couldn't just be entering and leaving town for no reason. The military also requisitioned taxis and trucks to send patrols to outposts. General Marshall uh, asked all the ministers in Lexington to include something in their sermons that weekend, encouraging people to respect the military authority and obey the military while they were there. Of course, now in 2023, you could see how this could go very badly. Um, People don't respond well to having their basic freedoms revoked, But in 1920, in Lexington, this went surprisingly well. Everyone seemed to understand why they were there, they accepted martial law, and a week after the riot, almost all the troops sent in from Camp Taylor had left Lexington to go back to Louisville. They terminated martial law completely on February 22nd, and the last troops left Lexington. General Marshall directed the civil authorities to, quote, resume and administer their usual function. Shortly after the riot, the county coroner, John Anglin, ordered an inquest be conducted to determine the cause of death for each of the individuals who died the day of the riot. General Marshall thought this was a great idea, so he called for a grand jury to be convened made up of, quote, prominent citizens. And it was partially because of this inquest that the troops from Camp Taylor stayed as long as they did. They chose 12 white men to be on the jury. These were people like um, real estate investors, bank presidents, farmers, um, and they were responsible with the task of, quote, vindicating the innocent while fixing blame on the guilty. They had around 20 witnesses from the day of the riot testify. They... Had gotten well into this inquest, and then the first grand jury was dismissed from service. The Commonwealth's attorney felt like the jury selection had been rushed. It was way too fast and it wasn't done properly. So they started over. They chose 12 more people, and I mean, again, it was a bunch of white men, business owners, but. Uh, They did it again, and the judge explained to them their responsibilities, they went through the motions, they heard testimony from several witnesses, they indicted no one. They described the events of that day as, quote, justifiably angry and infuriated citizens who formed a dense mass of people, all of whom were greatly and wildly excited They said a lot of what appeared to be the mob were actually just innocent bystanders who were curious about what was happening. So they moved a little closer to the courthouse, but not in a malicious way. Um, They also acknowledged that there probably were people who incited and encouraged the violence, the closest thing to leaders, as you could say, but even they didn't directly kill anyone. And the jury didn't feel like those people were responsible for anybody's deaths, plus it would be very hard to pinpoint who those people were. Ultimately, the jury seemed to think that indicting anybody would just start the whole process of frustration and unrest over again, and that wasn't conducive to healing. What the town needed was to just move on from the whole incident. The last thing they needed was to have to bring troops back into town and go back into martial law. (laughs) There were disputes over whether General Marshall was even really allowed to declare martial law in Lexington, and the answer, apparently, is no, he was not allowed to do that. There's a book published by the Army's Center of Military History called The Role of Federal Military Forces in Domestic Disorders, where they look at the mob rights in Lexington, and according to that pretty official-sounding book, it was unconstitutional to declare martial law in Lexington. The book says General Marshall overstepped his authority. He didn't have permission from the president. He didn't really even have permission from anyone below the president. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting side note. So that was the military takeover of Lexington in February of 1920. But what happened to the killer, Will Lockett? Well, he was sentenced to die at Eddyville on March 11, 1920. Um, by the time he needed to move back to the state pen, General Marshall and his troops were at the courthouse, so they were able to stand guard while the local lawmen escorted Lockett to be transported by train. Several troops from Camp Taylor actually traveled with Lockett on the 200-plus mile journey back to Eddieville. I've talked about Eddieville on previous episodes, and I've I really want to do an episode on it, so that, that'll that be coming in the future. Lockett's sentencing of death via the electric chair was the first handed down by the Fayette County Court. Up to that point, you would have been hanged, probably in Fayette County, and those were public hangings. But the electric chair was much more private, and just a few people would be present. But that didn't mean people didn't want to go. They did. They wanted to attend his electrocution. In fact, the judge received letters from out of state from people asking how they could get in to watch. While he was awaiting his death, he was guarded by three soldiers sent by the governor, and a manned machine gun was set up at the prison, which had not been there prior to Lockett's arrival, and those who were around him in the days leading up to his death said that he was pretty calm. He mostly spent his time praying and reading the Bible. But there is this one other thing that happened. During these final days, Will Lockett revealed to the warden that his name wasn't actually William Lockett. It was Petrie Kimbrough. But who is Petrie Kimbro? <laughs> There was a Petrie Kimbrough on record, born in May of 1888 in Christian County. And the pieces started to fit that this could be one and the same. So here's what happened. This was sort of like a deathbed confession. It happened right after he was baptized in a bathtub in the prison by the Eddyville minister. He asked one of his guards if he could talk to the warden. And he told the warden that he killed multiple people not just Geneva Hardman. He told the warden that he killed all his victims by choking them. He said he assaulted one woman in 1905 and then murdered three others in the years after that. This confession was typed out and signed at one point, but no one knows what happened to it. This confession has been lost to time. It's not in any sort of record. The victims' names were listed in the confession, and a local paper followed up and reported that these murders had only been casually investigated. So it looked like they all remained unsolved. And he didn't recall their names perfectly, but he remembered some of them or parts of names and roughly the times of their, their murders. These are now believed to be Clara Rogers' Eliza Mormon and Sally Anderson Craft. So, one of them uh, took, he said, took place at Camp Taylor while he was there, and they did match that up with a murder that happened near Camp Taylor around that time. Because he was going to die, like two days after this confession, they didn't investigate it further. So these confessions basically died with Lockett, or Kimbrough, whoever he is. Now, up until this point, everything I've told you is from the book that I'm going to put in the show notes about Geneva Hardman's murder. If you do a Google search of the names Will Lockett and Petrie Kimbrough, a bunch of hits come up calling him a serial killer. It seems like the internet has decided this guy was a serial killer. But I just couldn't find the evidence. Everything I saw on sites like Murderpedia didn't have any like, hard facts that could link Lockett to these murders. It doesn't look like anyone's done any follow-up investigation. Um, the jury's still out for me. If I had to guess, I would say it's possible he was responsible for multiple violent crimes. It's probably likely but I'm not convinced that he is responsible for the exact crimes that people have decided to attribute to him on the internet with nothing but a written confession we have no record of. If that makes sense. Anyway, he was the 32nd person to die by electric chair in the state of Kentucky. It took about 15 seconds. He was pronounced at 4.32 a.m. on March 11, 1920, if it's true that he was Petrie Kimbrough and he was born in 1888, then he would have been just 31 years old at the time of his death. That's two decades longer than Geneva Hardman got to live. One last thing I want to mention before I leave. The author of this book closes with a segment about lynching in Kentucky, and I think I should talk about that too. The book says that between 1877 and 1950, 168 lynchings of people of color occurred in Kentucky, although other reports put that number well above 200. And it was the mob mentality that led to these lynchings, which was why law enforcement and the government were so quick to shut down these riots. The outcome wasn't always the same, as in Lexington, though. Keep in mind that back then, many law enforcement officials were members of the KKK. They wouldn't bat an eye if a mob tried to lynch a black person. Please don't think I'm trying to be preachy here. These are facts. If you don't know the history of things like the slave patrol and how Southern police departments formed, I would urge you to look into it. And the author of the book does a good job putting this into perspective. Quote, Just a few decades earlier, on the same courthouse square where shots were fired by troops upon those with that mob mentality, slaves were traded in one of the most notorious and seamy slave marts in the South. That's gonna do it for this episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. The book I used for most of this episode is called *The Murder of Geneva Hardman and Lexington's Mob Riot of 1920* by Peter Brackney. Uh, It's a little over 100 pages. It's a quick read, but it's got a lot of local information that I kind of skipped over. It's it's a good read, so I I recommend getting it. I'll put it in the show notes. If you haven't already, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening. Um, If you have a suggestion for a future episode, send that to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. You can also send corrections there. So if I've misspoken about something, shoot me an email. And uh, thank you to the two people that suggested this topic. I did not write your names down, but there were two of you. And that was a good suggestion. So thank you. Keep them coming. Thank you all for listening and until next time.